How They Train is brought to you by Pillar Performance. The feed is the official home of Pillar Performance in America, and it's the only place Pillar Performance is available to buy from if you live in America. And so if you're an American who listens to How They Train and hears me go on and on about how much Pillar Performance's triple magnesium has helped my sleep and wants to try it for yourself, then head to thefeed.com and grab yourself some. The best part is my discount code HTT20 works there as well. And that gets you 20% off all of your Pillar Performance products. It also helps support the show. I've been a terrible sleeper my whole life and it got to a point where it was really negatively affecting my training, my work and my relationships. And that's why I started buying Pillar Performance's Triple Magnesium for myself, just to see if it helped. And I seriously can't recommend it enough. If you've ever thought to yourself, I just don't think I fall asleep that easily or I don't feel refreshed when I wake up in the morning like I did every single night and every single morning, then trust me, try Pillar Performance for yourself head over to thefeed.com to grab it and use the discount code HTT20 to get yourself 20% off. Flora Duffy, welcome to How They Train. You're an Olympic champion, you're a four-time world champion, six-time world Xterra champion, you've won an Ironman 70.3. You honestly have one of the most impressive resumes in in all of triathlon, not just female triathlon. Um, and I want to come back and talk to you throughout this episode about all of your training and your life leading into these, these massive wins and, um, and these massive races. But where I want to start today, Flora, is by asking you, what's your focus on at the moment and in the like short term future is it the 2024 olympics or is it becoming a 70.3 or ironman world champion or something else completely <laughs> yeah well first of all thank you for having me on and um it's a nice introduction to listen to <laughs> um and yeah for me at the moment my next goal is is paris paris 2024 uh, so that's my short-term goal because it literally is just, what, I don't know, probably less than 18 months away. Um, and last year, 2022 season, I played around with a little bit of, of long course, just sort of have uh, always wanted to explore that a little bit. But I, f- I found it really difficult to fully commit to that because my heart is really into preparing for Paris. And so... Um, yeah, just sort of dabbled in it, got to see what what was there. I would like to explore that more post Paris, but for the next yeah year plus of of my career, it's going to be yeah, all in short course um, to go to Paris and hopefully defend my Olympic title. So I've always wanted to ask someone of your caliber um, in short course triathlon this question, and just haven't had the right person to ask it to. Um, but I think it's you and. What it is, is I, I had a conversation with Olav Alexander Boo, the, the head coach of um, Gustav Eden and Christian Blumenfeld. And we spoke about how short course triathlon is at a much higher standard than long course, um, particularly in terms of depth. Like everyone on a, um, on a, like say the Olympic start line is like a, a very, very, very good triathlete and could win, you know, big races. Um, whereas if you, even if you go to like Kona, not everyone at that start line is at the same level at like the, the bottom sort of bracket of athlete is, is not quite as good. Um, 
And yet long course triathlon is so much more popular. And if you win Kona, it's, it's a much bigger deal to the triathlon fan and the general public than, you know, winning a WTCS race or, and that kind of thing. Um, I would even argue that, you know, maybe even more so than winning an Olympic games. So my question for you is you've done everything there is to do in short course. Why is it that you still race short course and you still want to go and win the Olympic Games and that you don't want to go and try and win Kona, which is the biggest event in, in, in the sport of triathlon and the one that, you know, the fans care most about? Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, and some things I've certainly been asked before, um, but I think it's all personal. And for me, the Olympics has always been a big aspiration and what I personally believe fulfills me like the most as the pinnacle of triathlon and the most meaningful greatest race that I could have ever possibly won. And so I, yeah, I've also never had the drive to, to race Ironman. I don't know. It just doesn't really appeal to me to, to race for nine hours. Um, it just sounds crazy. Um, so yeah, I, I've always had that, that desire and enjoyment to racing the short course distances and I do agree that it is interesting that yeah I guess maybe I guess it's a big generalization to say that the triathlon community does in general sort of weigh the 70.3 in Ironman I guess to be more popular or maybe you can boost your profile and a bit more than perhaps the racing on the world triathlon circuit. And I think that's also because it, it is very competitive racing on the world triathlon circuit. And there are 60 people in every single race. There's definitely not 60 people in every single 70.3 or Ironman. And so it's definitely a lot harder to break through and become sort of a household name. If you're just racing on the world triathlon series, I think you have to then win multiple races, win multiple world titles, podium at an Olympics, win an Olympics to sort of break through and maybe get the same notoriety as maybe someone that's just racing well at the sort of domestic 70.3 level. I just say domestic because you can race just in the US and do super well, whereas like world triathlon, you're going all over the world racing in, in all of these different races. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I dabbled with the 70.3 and the PTO 100K stuff last year. And it's so different from World Triathlon races. Like, I think, I don't know, you go to World Triathlon race and it's very elite athlete focused. Like, you're the center. Everything about the race revolves around your race. Whereas then you go to a 70.3 and like the professionals are literally, it just felt like they're as, as like a sideshow. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, and I don't know. I guess I just really love like the high intensity and the prestige and pressure of racing in, in the short course races. And not to say you don't get that in the um, longer longer course racing, but I think it's just very, very different. And yeah, my ultimate goal has never been to win Kona. I would like to be 70.3 world champion. And if I get the time and space to prepare for that properly in my career, that would, that would be great and put myself out there to, to be in the shape to do that. But for Ironman, no. And, and, and to be perfectly honest, I would challenge and say winning Olympic gold 
has done way more for me than winning an Ironman championships ever would. Um, and I don't know if that's because being from Bermuda, like literally the entire island tuned in to watch me race because I think the Olympic brand, it's just so big and powerful that, you know, if you just kind of know somebody that's racing, like you'll tune in because it's the Olympics. Whereas I feel like if I was racing in Kona, people on the periphery wouldn't really tune in or pay as much attention. And that's, that's just my personal opinions or how, how, how I've experienced it. Um, whereas just the amount of people that reached out to either myself or Dan or my parents after the Olympics, it's like unbelievable um, how far and wide it, it, it reaches, um, which yeah was just really incredible to experience. And so with this, Flora, because like the Olympic Games, winning the Olympic Games in triathlon is the single hardest thing to do in triathlon. Winning Kona is hard. Winning the 70.3 World Championships is hard. Winning a PTO race is hard. But nothing compares to, to how hard it is to win an Olympic Games. Um, and so you're not only have you won an Olympic Games, you've been a four-time world champion. You're completely dominant when at your best. Like almost it's felt like the last few years when you're there at your best, you've got some strong competition and like we talked about, the depth is so, so strong, but it's almost like everyone else is fighting for second a little bit, or at least it feels like that. And not many athletes have that feel about them. Alistair Brownlee had that feel about him for a little bit. Jan Fredino over in the long course world had that feel about him for a little bit. And you're one of the other really notable one um, people who, who have had that feel and you probably still do have that feel. So what is it that makes you so good relative to the other people you're racing, given how good they are as well? <laughs> um, geez, yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, I think it looks like that from the outside, but I guess I'm experiencing, you know, all of my training and ups and downs very day to day. And so, yeah, it's like not like every, even if I'm in good shape, it's not like I go into every race, like very confident that I'll win because maybe my preparation hasn't been ideal and I've had to, cut corners or I've battled some sort of illness or injury, um, you know, going into it. Um, so I, yeah, honestly, I have no idea. I mean, I think I've been able to over the years really put together a great team of people that helped me go into the races to race at my best ability given that day. And I think it's, it's really helpful that I have Dan, my husband, he'll go to the races with me and I mean, we're not a big federation where there's like, you know, six to 10 athletes that need kind of looking after, like he just needs to make sure like I'm doing okay and, and doing everything to sort of make sure that all the details on race day are completely dialed and that we, we don't mess anything up sort of pre-race so that I go onto the start line. Yeah. Just completely ready and focused, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's kind of a hard question to answer. I think, yeah, just a lot of it comes down to maybe the training, who you have on your team, your mental space. Um, and I guess I, ultimately, I just really love to race. And I think I can just bring another level um, every time that I race. And I, yeah, I suppose also gotten used to and comfortable with the pressure that I have going into these big races which that's been the biggest piece for me to, to get right. Um, because that can really 
I mean, change your ability to race. I mean, to stand on a start line, like at the Olympic games and truly believe that you can win this race. Um, yeah, it's a really powerful space to be in and, and it doesn't just happen overnight. So I don't know, I guess lots of years of hard work and a bit of luck on race day, perhaps. I don't know. <laughs> so you mentioned the training and I want to come back into that. And that's what I really want to go deep on. That's what we do here. But the other thing you said was, um, the mental side of things and, and your ability to go to a different level on race day that that's piqued my interest. When you say you have an ability to go to a different level on race day, I think a lot of people, particularly at the elite level, think they have that, but there, there's obviously, there's obviously levels there, isn't there? So what do you mean when you say that? What does you going to another level in racing mean? And how is it different? Do you think from, from other people? Um, sure. Well, I, I guess it's really hard to know different from other people, but I say that in terms of my performance, because I think in training, I just do the training as prescribed. There's nothing like sensational, just have solid good days back to back to back. Like I'm not trying to set new PBs if I do one Ks on the track or in swimming or, you know, push too much power on the bike, like just everything that's prescribed. And I think that sort of consistency then allows me on race day to sort of, I don't know, use all that training that I've, I've done and put it all together, um, to race. Well, like I'm not, I don't know. Some people, I see people constantly sort of overtraining or digging too deep and then they go to a race and they're like doing the exact same that they do in training or do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, really interesting, I guess, to have the confidence to just do the training as prescribed, which then can really set you up to have, um, to be able to dig pretty deep, um, in, in a race. So do you think that because you don't go to the well in training, it means you can race better come race day? Or do you think if you did go, okay, I'm going to try and I'm going to train a little bit harder and, you know, try and run a little bit faster at that track session, swim a little bit faster. Do you think that would, um, would that change your race day performance to the point where you wouldn't be the same Flora Duffy, the same dominant Flora Duffy? Um, I think if you did it pretty consistently over a period of time, yeah. I mean, you just get pretty flat and if you're not getting enough rest, then how do you expect to to perform um, on race day, particularly when you have a lot of other stressors that you're trying to manage um, and deal with. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, definitely that. I, th I think, um, and I mean, yeah, the mental side is massive. I mean, having the confidence and even the vulnerability to really put yourself out there and go for it is difficult. Like it's nerve wracking when you're leading your first World Series race to really go for it. Like there's such a difference between winning a race and finishing, you know, second through fifth or whatever, like really going for it and putting yourself out there um, is massive. And I guess I've kind of just, I don't know, developed this fearless ability to race, to just kind of go for it and put it all out there and not be afraid if it doesn't work out. And I think that took some trial and error and but ultimately, I guess I've learned from it and then you adjust and just over time, I guess it's just 
allowed me to con- sort of consistently race at this really high level, which has, yeah, I guess really um, allowed me some, some, some great races and uh, yeah, to be consistently successful. Can I ask you a question that might be relatable to like, or how to relate this to, to your everyday person or not your everyday person, but an age group triathlete or even like a, a like a lower level professional who still has to work um, and has other commitments, like doesn't have the luxury um, or hasn't earned the privilege of, of being able to train full time and obsess over it. Do you think that if you're only training 10, 12, 15 hours a week versus say 20, 25, 30, do you think the same thing um, matters? Like, do you think it's still important to hold back in training? Or do you think that if, as your volume, like your weekly volume comes back in training, it probably would be better to, to train a little bit harder? And, it, and it's just for people like yourself who can train 25, 30 hours a week that should hold back? Um, oh, gosh. That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like I'm getting asked a lot of maybe like, it feels like a coaching question. Um, I don't know. I think they're also managing a heck of a lot more than what I am. So again, if you're just constantly digging yourself deep into a hole and you're not executing all of your sessions properly, because I mean, I think any training plan should have harder days and easier days, but your harder days don't mean you go to like the death because for example, this person probably has to go work an eight, nine hour a day and then go home and has family commitments. And yeah, so I think everything needs to be sort of in balance and in harmony to sort of have the most consistent training to put together a good race day. Um, but yeah, I mean, their training probably is going to look a little bit different from mine because, yeah, I don't do anything else but train and I get to nap every single day and I'm fortunate that Dan will go to the grocery store and he does a lot of the cooking and I literally just train and sleep and eat and just keep doing that over and over again. Um, So yeah, I guess, yeah, there would definitely be differences in perhaps the training and maybe they would do shorter, more intense sessions than perhaps what a professional that gets to, to train and train full time would be doing. So let's go into the training. Um, firstly, are you still coached by by Nate Wilson? I am, yes. Yeah. And how long have you guys been working together, Flora? Yeah, so Nate started coaching me in 2018. I guess the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And uh, I've actually known Nate for a very long time. We were at the University of Colorado at the same time, CU. Um, I'm older than him, so he was like, freshman and I was a senior but he comes from a very high cycling background and so we were both racing on the CU cycling team at the same time and so we became friends and he's raced yeah at, at an extremely high level in cycling and uh yeah it was just been my friend and he's someone that I would always chat to about my training or he would just take an interest and you know before I was coached by him and uh So then it came to the point where I wanted to make a coaching change and Nate had never coached a triathlete at this point. He'd only done cycling coaching. And I said, I would like you to coach me. And I think he was kind of like, okay. He's like, you know, I've never coached a triathlete before. And I was like, yeah, but it's fine. Like I'm kind of at the point of my career where, you know, I know a lot what to do with the swimming and the running. And I have someone that's actually here in South Africa called Ernie who helps a lot with my running. So I was like, 
no, I think I think it can work quite well. And um, yeah, it's been great. Uh, Nate, he's an awesome coach, um, really smart guy, knows his stuff, great at communicating. And yeah, it's been great. And over those years, he's taken on um, quite a few triathletes. I think now they're, we have like a training group. I've never really had a sort of training group before. So there's myself, Kevin McDowell, Kristen Casper, Val Bartholomew, and Chase McQueen, which is pretty cool. Because I always think about your, when I think about your career, I think you have had like two really standout years. Like 2017 was like, it was an insane year for people who weren't following the sport then maybe don't watch much short course or don't know. But like, I think you won, you won pretty much every WTCS race that year. Like I, you won that world championships by so much. It wasn't even funny. It was like one of the most dominant years I've ever seen from a triathlete in my 20 years watching the sport. Um, and then you moved on to Nate the following year in 2018. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was really curious at the time. I, I remember thinking to myself, I didn't even know who coached you then, but I'm like, Oh, Flora is like got a new coach, but it's just had one of the biggest years we've ever seen. Um, and so at the time I was really curious about what happened. Can, can you take me inside that? Yeah. I mean, there's no, no drama or juicy gossip there. Just, I was coached by Neil Henderson before I swapped over to Nate and Nate and Neil had been coaching me for like, yeah, six or seven years by that point. So when I moved to Boulder in 20, 2009, January, 2009, I started working with Neil and yeah, we had a great relationship. He really brought me on as an athlete, um, enjoyed the, we had like a nice mixed training group of, I was the only person really doing short course. A few guys like Cameron Dye, he was there doing sort of the Olympic non-draft scene in the US and yeah, a, a couple others. And it was a really nice group, some cyclists. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, but I just kind of felt like I wanted something different. And that sort of training group was, um, people were just going their separate ways, whether they were retiring from the sport just whatever. And so it just kind of felt like even though I had had such a great year, I felt like I wanted to change. And it's not like it was a radical change. Like, I mean, Nate saw all what I was doing. Nate's not like a crazy coach. It's not like I went from doing like 25 hours of training to 35 hours, like really not that big of differences. In, in fact, if anything, just focusing a lot more on the details Nate wasn't coaching as many athletes at the time. So had a lot of capacity to be like really detail orientated with me and um, which was great. I mean, I did have a really, well, the start of 2018 was really great. And so I would say some of my best ever racing. Then I picked up a foot injury, which was a whole ordeal, but yeah, that no, there was nothing, nothing, uh, no bad blood or anything there. I mean, Neil was at, I had a little party at my house after the Olympics and Neil was there and it was super meaningful to have him there. And uh, he was one of the first people to text me after I crossed the line in Tokyo with a, you know, a very emotional, meaningful message. And so no, super grateful for the journey that we had and that um, it ended on great terms and yeah, I can still, reach out to him and have a chat um, now, which I think is awesome because it doesn't typically end that way with a lot of coach athlete relationships um, from what I kind of hear amongst the triathlon uh, scene. So 
yeah, nothing, nothing spicy. <laughs> and you've always been like one of the absolute best swim bikers in the sport. Um, that really shows itself in your Xterra racing. It's it's on multiple times, like countless times, you've won WTCS races simply by like being there um, on the run with no one else around you from what you've done on the swim bike. But I feel like recently so your olympics um probably like maybe even from that 2018 year i feel like you've become the best runner in the sport on your day as well um like not just like you know there's some great runners but but i still think that if you lined everyone up um uh, just for a straight 10k race you might you might win that these days whereas i never used to think that about you um Mm -hmm. so i guess what's changed in your training how have how have you gone from being probably one of the best swimmers probably the single best cyclist and an okay runner at that level to being definitely still one of the best swimmers not quite the best but pretty close definitely the best cyclist and now like i think the best runner (laughs) well thank you um yeah my running's been a work in progress and uh sort of consistently been i think improving since about 2015 uh i think if like someone looked back and just saw my progress and uh yeah my initial tactic to try and do well in these races because my run wasn't that strong was to really push the swim bike get a gap get rid of as many runners as possible and then just sort of run the best 10k I could and that worked out pretty well um but you know then people sort of catch on to that and then you know switch their strengths to um, swim and bike or, or work on their swim and bike so that the gaps aren't the same, or maybe you don't get rid of some people, uh, like you used to. And so that really made me, me think, okay, well, or maybe made me really push and focus on my running because I was like, okay, well, I can't just be one trick pony. Like I need to have options here in these races. If something's not kind of playing out the way that suits me, like, I don't want to then just be running for like 10th place or whatever. So yeah, my run has just been a sort of consistent uh, build. I work with a really great running coach here in Stellenbosch, Ernie. He's got a great group. He's worked with some high level um, South African runners over his time. And just his training really resonates with me. We don't do high volume. Um, a lot of it is just kind of working and dialing in sort of just good biomechanics, not doing like long slogging workouts I mean I've built up to the ability to do some pretty decent workouts now but I certainly didn't start I don't know six seven years ago doing the workouts that I'm doing now it's been a nice steady progression Um, and then also outside of sort of my run training really focusing in on my biomechanics putting a lot of time and effort into that um, which I, I came from I had a good running background and I think it was just kind of all got a little bit lost in my times of this is like 2010 ish time, like not racing, coming back to racing, not racing. And so it was really just kind of chipping away and getting my run back to, I don't know how it, I knew I could run if that makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's just taken a lot of time and effort and piecing together the right people to help me, do that and thankfully I think one of my great skills is if I get told to sort of do something I can kind of do it if that makes sense without overthinking it like 
I don't know. Uh, or if I get some body work done and I don't know, certain tight areas get released, like it just kind of then naturally falls into my running and it's just allowed, I guess, allowed me to, to open up more and I don't know, just move better in general. So yeah, it's various, various factors. Um, and I think also the fact that my bike was so strong, that's like one of the key pieces of um, being a good runner off the bike is if you have a strong bike and it doesn't take that much out of you, it's setting you, setting you up so much better to have a solid run off of the bike. So yeah, just many pieces kind of coming together and, and working out the puzzle of triathlon of how you're getting swim, bike, run to sort of all work together as one, which is not, not that simple. Dan Plews is one of the world's very best triathlon coaches. What Dan has done to transform Chelsea Sodaro into a world champion has been simply amazing to watch. And Dan is one of the very few world-class triathlon coaches who makes his training accessible to the public to use for themselves. It's an online coaching community called Endure IQ. It's a platform that has hundreds of training plans written by Dan himself to suit each individual. For example, if you only have time for six to eight hours training because of work and family, there's programs for you, written by Dan. If you have time for 15 hours, then again, there's plans for you, written by Dan. And if you want to really take things to the next level and train 25 hours a week like a professional, again, there's plans for you, written by Dan. The best thing about it is that there is so many training plans that no matter who you are or what you do, you'll find one that's exactly right for you. And it costs so much less than what you, you what you would pay for getting coached by a much, much lower level coach at only $25 per week. And Dan has given us a discount code. So if you use the code HTT15 when you sign up, you'll get 15% off, making it even cheaper again. Also, probably the best part is you get direct access to Dan Blues himself to ask any questions you want about your training, your nutrition, your racing, etc. via a weekly webinar and an online forum. So if you want to take your training and racing to the next level and work with one of the very select world-class triathlon coaches we have for a fraction of the price of what they would usually charge, then head over to an Endure IQ page. Um, the link is in the description. Use the code HTT15 for that extra little discount and get stuck in. That's what I want to talk about here. I, I like sometimes I'll do a podcast floor and I'll be like, oh, I wish I had a, like had have got someone to just take a bit more time um, and and like break down what it is they do in their week and like how they do piece it all together. Um, because like you'll often ask like, oh yeah, so what's a week look like? And it, it gets a bit rushed and it's like sort of you're listening, um, like I'm listening back to it when I'm producing it or when like other people are listening for the first time. It's sort of, it can be a bit hard to like, wrap your head around it when when someone's just reeling off and then i do this 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 um so <laughs> I mean, if it's okay i'd like to take a little bit of time here you know 10 15 minutes and and just explore and break down and and analyze what it is you do to to fit it all together and piece it all together week by week um if you wouldn't mind mm -hmm. yeah sure yeah what does a week look like for you how do how do you you and nate and ernie your two coaches how do you piece it all together um, yeah, so I think Nate is definitely like the head coach, if you could call, you know, give him that. And so he will work out sort of, um, yeah, my week structure. And I, I don't do anything like, uh, I don't know, some people do like three days on two days off, you know, so it's every day is sort of different. 
I, I do not do that. I'm very much a routine person. I need to know what I'm doing. Like my Mondays is always are always the same. My Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. And I find that really helps just to create structure and order. And then I can know when I need to fit in my massages, my physios, when I have time that I can do something social. And yeah, for me, that just um, gives me the overall structure that I really need to sort of thrive. So Nate sets out that training week and then we'll discuss with Ernie of like, uh, you know, what the chunks of the season look like, like depending on this is my race block. And I can't think of the word now of just, yeah, varying the intensity throughout the year. Like periodization? Yes, that's it. Thank you. Periodization. (laughs) Very basic term. Um, Yeah, so they'll do that. And so for me, a training week, okay, I'll just pick a training week. um, Just pick your most impressive one ever to make people think. Oh, gosh, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I think people will be shocked. I think my training is, like, not that impressive. But I think the one thing I've gotten really good at is – minimizing all distractions outside of training and being really comfortable and confident in that, like making my life as simple as possible, which, which is huge in terms of recovery and just being able to just execute training. It can be incredibly boring, but it's hugely important. Um, so, all right, this is just a pretty standard week for me. Mondays is always sort of aerobic recovery. So I'll do a 5K aerobic swim and that'll look like something like a K warm up. And if I'm in Boulder, I have a few people that I do this with. Um, and it'll be about a 3K main set. And it's just some solid aerobic swimming. I don't know. I can't think of a set now. But if we're swimming short course meters, there'll be stuff off 130, stuff off 125, stuff off 120. Not necessarily swimming faster because of the off time, just getting less rest, which for me, I really focus on being more efficient. So that's just like a nice, good, like 3K main set. And then we'll do a K pulling, five twos. Again, just aerobic, 10 seconds rest type session, 5K. And then I do an hour easy spin. I typically will do either that on Swift or I'll go on my gravel bike and just cruise around and then always get a massage as well on Monday and always take a nap. Tuesday is a little bit more intense. That'll start with a run workout and that can be anywhere from 12 to 14 Ks in total of the session, anywhere from six to eight Ks of like quality work. And um, yeah, typically on a Tuesday, slightly longer intervals, Um, I guess anywhere from sort of, and I'll do this more as like by time. So either I do it on a, on a dirt road or normal pavement and it'll be anywhere from, I guess, like 800 meters to 1.5, 1.5 K intervals Um, or some, you know, like something simple, like six by three minutes. And that's just in and around like race pace, race pace, feel some at altitude if I'm doing this in Boulder and so, yeah, just kind of race by f- race pace feel maybe like, I think 75, 90 seconds rest. Um, and then just an easy cool down. And then, uh, so I'll do that in the morning. Then around 11 o'clock, I either the swim will either be something 
about 3K in total with some pace change. So let's say you could do like six 300s and every fourth 25 is a pickup, something like that. Or it might be, depending on how close I am to a race, it could be some like VO2 work. And that's very short. That could be like 50 on two minutes, 100 on four minutes, 50 on two minutes, 100 on four minutes, and then a 50 on two minutes. That's like the bulk of the work. And it's like really hard, really intense, lactate through the roof, then easy cool down and uh, warm up either side of it. So that's about 3K. And then in the afternoon, I'll have, after I've napped, uh, I'll have either a 90 minute to two hour ride and that'll always have some sort of sprint in it. Very short course focused. Whether it's like 2040s or 4040s or I don't know, 3030s with some, and then some tempo either side of it. Um, yeah, something like that. So Tuesday is nothing is like super long, but it's definitely a very intense day. And Wednesdays, I typically do a threshold swim in the morning, anywhere between four and five Ks. And then usually sort of a 90 minute to two hour, just aerobic ride, and then a gym session. Thursdays is a key ride. And so that can be a mix of VO2 work, threshold work, tempo work, whatever, about two hours, easy recovery swim, sort of three and a half, 4K. And then in the evening, I'll do a track session. That can be anything from 2200s to, I don't know, 16400s or 15300s. And again, that total will be about, yeah, 12 to 14K range. Fridays is a super easy day. So I'll just do an easy um, technique swim. Again, probably like 3K. And then I do, what else do I do on Friday? Do I do like a little bit of gym and mobility? Um, and that's pretty much it. Get another massage or go to physio, nap and chill. And then rest up for Saturday because Saturday is a pretty big day. So that'll be my long rides, which are usually between three to four hours, mostly around three, unless I'm preparing for like last year and it's sort of 70.3 or 100K race. Then the overall bike volume is a bit more in the week, but this is a short course week. So about three hours and that could have some quality in it too. Usually just some tempo. So I'll do that. And then later in the afternoon, is a pretty spicy swim, very race specific. And again, it's only about three Ks, I would say, oh, three, three to four, um, with about 1500 to 1800 meters of work, which is pretty like race specific. So, you know, it could be 50s, very fat, like VO2 takeout, then you settle into some threshold and then you sort of pick it up towards the end as you're like, you know, preparing to sort of exit and jockey for position as you get out of the swim. Um, and then after that, usually it can be an easy run with some strides or a few hill strides. And again, that can be about eight to 10 Ks of running. And then on Sundays, I do a long run and that can anywhere be anywhere from an hour 15 to an hour 30. And that's just cruise. I typically run that at like, 4.30, 4.35 per K pace and just kind of, or slower if I feel I need to run slower, but that's 
yeah, typically where I run it. And then I do a gym session. And then later in the evening, I have an optional just hour spin that I sometimes do, sometimes don't do, just usually on my gravel bike. Dan usually joins me. And so that's kind of like a nice way to to end the week cruising around Boulder. And that's my week, pretty much. I don't know if that was enough detail or if I, I rushed through it, but. I thought it was perfect. <laughs> and that's about 25 hours. <laughs> yeah, that well, I've got like, I was sort of um, mentally like taking a few no- notes of things to ask for. And um, the volume was one, um, brick sessions was, was another one. Um, and then the difference, uh, like when you do train for, for your 70.3 world championships and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, let's start with the volume. Do you ever do, you know, weeks bigger than sort of 25 hours or like, do you ever do, um, 30 hour weeks, 35 hour weeks, or are you sort of always sitting at around that 25 hour mark? Yeah, I'm pretty much always sitting around that 25 hour mark. I don't do, yeah, I've never done a 30 hour week. Um, there was, so last year when I was preparing for 70.3 worlds, I was doing a little bit more than 25 hours a week for, for a period, but not, it was like 26, 27 hours, <laughs> not that much. But when I saw it in my training peaks, I was like, oh, wow. it's good it's funny because imagine how many people on that 70.3 world champ start line would see 26 hour weeks and be like oh that's not much (laughs) yeah maybe but you know everyone's individual right you've got to train to what suits you like me doing me doing a 30 or 35 hour training week for short course would just make me just slow and flat and useless in my opinion but can work for great for somebody else. So you just got to know that about yourself and trust that. Yeah. Um, so, so with that difference between training for the 70.3 world championships, which you came fifth in, and I assume everyone would know that um, versus you like a typical short course week saying you build up to the, the Olympics and that kind of thing is, is the main difference. What you touched on, is it just that the long ride might be a little bit longer and um, maybe there's like some subtle differences in the intervals you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So my build to 70.3 worlds, it was a little complex because I was battling a knee injury at the time. So I wasn't running more much, but that allowed me to bring my cycling volume up a lot, which is actually more what I needed uh, at the time. So I was riding about, I want to say like 15, 16 hours a week, which is definitely the most I've ever done. So I was doing more volume, but the intensity wasn't... Um, as high because I think for me coming from a short course background and I've raced short course for so long that I'm very suited to that style of very being on off between, you know, threshold VO2, threshold VO2. Whereas for 70.3, I really had to sort of dial in that like long sustained effort. And so that was a big challenge for me um, because I just haven't done that much in my career. So that's, sort of block before 70.3 worlds, which I'm calling that block about seven weeks between the Dallas PTO and 70.3 worlds. I mostly focused on my cycling. And again, yeah, it was just dialing in sort of the rain, the sort of watt range that I wanted to ride at 70.3 worlds, doing longer intervals, you know, like three by 20 minutes or just long stuff like that. 30 minute, 20 minute, 10 minutes, 
efforts. I mean, okay, anyone that does Ironman will probably laugh at me complaining about those intervals. But for me, it was such such a like shock to get my head around sort of doing that sustained, boring work <laughs> and being in the TT position and getting comfortable in that. And yeah, man, it's just such a steep learning curve to have a good aero position, be able to push, you know, decent power and be comfortable. So yeah, I, I, that's that was the biggest change for me um, was the riding. So that looked like my Saturday was always sort of four to four and a half hours. And then in the week, I did another either three or four hour ride. And then uh, one of my like two hour rides got extended to like two and a half hours. So it was just really adding, bulking out the volume of my riding. This question might sound weird, um, borderline offensive, <laughs> but I, you're so good and so dominant that I'm almost a little bit more interested in the 70.3 world champs last year because you didn't dominate it. And and like, I, I would be like, there's, there's stuff about that that I'm really fascinated to, to ask your ideas about and, and like talk in hypotheticals about. Um, like for, for example, did you, cause you obviously rode 221 there that day and Taylor Nib rode 214 and like was pretty insane what she did. And you were sort of as fast as anyone else in the race. Like no one really rode that much faster than you, you know, you Paula, Paula and, and Lucy Charles, you're all pretty similar. Um, but, but Taylor was like six, seven minutes ahead of you guys. Did you put that down to, you hadn't been training for that specific thing for long aerodynamics equipment, um, the distance, like, did you think, okay, I can see how I can get to that level and win this race? Or did you go, whoa, I'm just not as good at this as I am at, at like Olympic distance or sprint distance racing? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely multiple factor, factors at play there. One, Taylor Niv is phenomenal at the distance. And yeah, her bike ride that day was insane. Um I was actually pretty happy with my numbers and I was happy to ride with Paula and Lucy because they're both really strong 70.3 riders. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was definitely a shock to me when I first heard that she had like a six minute bleed. I was just like, what, how is that possible? Uh, but she did. Uh, um, and then ran super strong off of it. That's the other thing I thought, Oh, maybe surely she won't you know, run as well as she did, but she did. It was, it was a really, really great day that she put together. Um, I think for me, in terms of my 70.3 performance, it's difficult because I think, yes, on paper, people would have looked at that and been like, mm, I expected Florida to do a lot better, but sort of those in the know, maybe like my coach and husband and a few of my training partners, I definitely didn't have a particularly ideal year leading into that um and and this is not i don't want to make excuses because i i mean i'm i've my race was fine and i learned a lot and i think i can be a lot better if i truly focus on 70.3 um i see areas where i can improve but to just go into my preparation of 70.3 worlds um yeah, it, it wasn't ideal. That year was really tough for me. Um, I had COVID twice, which really knocked me. Um, then even just the start of the year, coming off of the Olympics, 
and really experiencing the like what the heck am I doing like why am I doing triathlon was a huge thing for me to get over and to enjoy training and figuring out my why and that coupled with COVID yeah it was tough it was really tough for me to kind of feel myself again and that took quite a few months um, and then in saying that with having COVID twice I really the second time I had it I recovered sort of mid had it at the end of May into and then I you know started feeling better like three weeks later so we're now in mid-June and I'm still balancing short course with my intentions of doing some 70.3 and I had Commonwealth Games um, at the end of July and so I was really kind of on the back foot of I hadn't really done much intensity and I had this one hour race I was preparing for but I also kind of had this four hour race and a PTO race that I also kind of wanted to prepare for and ultimately just couldn't for large chunks of the year, I just couldn't do the volume necessary that was needed to sort of set me up well to have a good 70.3 build, if that makes sense. Like I really only started doing long rides over two and a half hours in August because that just the build that I had to do for Commonwealth Games. I just couldn't do huge volume. I had to focus on intensity. And so only sort of mid-August after I got back from the Collins Cup could I slowly introduce some volume. And I did get some good weeks going into 70.3. But if you want to compete for the win, like you need to have had some pretty solid volume. And because the level's high, I mean, if you want to ride with Taylor Nib over 90K, like you have definitely had to like dot your I's and cross your T's and have had a really good prep. So I see that definitely as somewhere that, um, I think I can improve in future once I fully switch over to it. I think, you know, fully committing to it and being able to do the work, having the time and space and not having this conflicting interest of, uh, of, of racing a one hour race, which is very different from preparing for a four, four and a half hour race. Also of note that, that you did win those Commonwealth games too. And Georgie Taylor Brown came second. So you could look at that as essentially yes. like, Hey, this is, I basically just won like the it's not it's not too dissimilar from winning the olympics that year like georgia and you are the two best in the world yeah you know, yeah you know like it's it, it's it's not like you had a bad year or anything even though it sounds like you did the way we're talking about it like you won the commonwealth games against the second best triathlete in the world and yeah. <laughs> yes sure yes 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 i think that is of it like um yeah i mean i think what i've ultimately should say is that like if you want to win 70.3 worlds, you have to truly, you have to like pretty much just focus on it. Like it's very hard to dabble back and forth. And I think you could see this like, yes, Taylor did really well at, at world series races, but she didn't win any, but she did really strong at 70.3. I won a handful of 70 point. Oh, sorry. No, I won a handful of world series races and the overall, and they did. Yeah. Good enough over 70.3. So it's just really difficult to excel at both of them at the same time. And so, yeah, in that regard, yeah, I do think I can get better at 70.3. Can I challenge for the win if Taylor's having one of those days? I don't know. I mean, my coach worked out what I need to do, and it's definitely possible. It's just whether, again, I have the time and space and desire to want to do that. I mean, my goal now is to prepare for Paris and that's a massive undertaking. 
How will I feel after Paris? I don't know. Like after Tokyo, I was exhausted. Will I want to keep racing or what do I want to do after Paris is kind of like, um, I sort of know what I want to do, but I can't for certain say that because it's a lot of um, unknown. Um, so yeah, I think it's possible, but yeah, she did have a pretty insane day. And then the other thing that I had going on into 70.3 worlds is I was battling pretty bad knee injury. So I didn't run that much before 70.3 worlds, um, which didn't bother me too much because I knew I could run well. It was just more like, oof, am I going to make this worse by doing a half marathon or will I be okay the other side? So that was definitely there in the back of my mind. And then the biggest factor for me, it was extremely cold like I'm not talking like cold like this was this was insanely cold and uh that's just not something I do well in um at all so I really tightened up a lot on the bike um because I think I was just bracing the entire time because I was like going between like I'm like I'm okay I'm okay to like full on like shivering, like chattering, like, you know, your teeth and just being like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, and so, yeah, I just really tightened up. And so then when I got off the bike to run, I was just like, Oh my word, what body is this? This is like, not how my body usually feels. Um, and so I just really struggled. I could, couldn't rotate, really struggled breathing. Um, and for the last 10 Ks of the half marathon, I like couldn't really hold my torso up. It was the strangest thing. It was like, I was like falling over and then I'd like pick my torso up and then it would just like fall back over again. Oh God, <laughs> it was horrific. That sounds like um something you that would happen to you in a dream. You know, when you have those weird dreams yes, where like yes. something bizarre happens and you can't stop it from happening. That's, that doesn't sound that like it's a real exactly. life thing. And I was like, how, what is going on? So it was horrible. <laughs> um, so yeah, overall I was, I think if I could have run just decent, I believe I could have been on the podium, but I didn't. I ran like, I don't know, a 125 and finished fifth, which was fine. Um, good experience, learned a lot. And I had to race nine days later in Bermuda, which arguably was a bigger race for me being that it was in Bermuda. So yeah, thankfully my knee held up and I didn't run that hard. So my legs weren't that beat up so I could race well in Bermuda. So that was like a nice silver lining to the wild experience I had. It sort of speaks a bit to the caliber of athlete you are. And I think the mindset you have where you know, like you might hear what you've just said then and go, oh, well, it's a luck. There's a lot of excuses or there's a lot of reasons why, but it's, it's not that. And I think you can tell it's not, that's not what you're saying. You're not making excuses. It's just, you have expectations on yourself about performance and you're sort of analyzing and breaking down, like, where could I have been, been better? What were the, th mm -hmm. the why, mm -hmm. why I wasn't good. And it's like the mind it's like, that was a real look inside the mind of an elite performer and someone who doesn't just like doesn't feel lucky when they win, but expects expects themselves to win and ex expects themselves to compete to win. 
Um, so that was really fascinating to hear you hear you talk then, because I think that could be misconstrued as excuses, but it's not it's not how I heard that. And yeah, like I love that insight into the mind of like someone as good at you as you at the thing you do. I think it's like that's such um, valuable insight. And like you still came fifth at that race, and you know like Taylor Nib had one of the best days in triathlon history, and you know Paula Finlay and Lucy Charles Barclay there. Like these are the best of the best in the sport, and, and you were right there. And and all that, all those reasons why you probably shouldn't have been, and most other people wouldn't have been, and you, you were still fighting for for the podium. So you know, I, like, yeah, I'm just, I'm always fascinated by, and and this might be over, overly complimentary, but people as good as you, um, and and like just the mindset you have, it's like it's different to an everyday person like myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. And so back to your training. Um, the, the other sort of question I had was, do you ever do brick sessions? I don't. I rarely do a brick session. I will do one maybe before my first race of the year. So if there's been a long gap since I've done a run off the bike, um, but that's pretty much it. So before the Olympics, because I only raced once before Tokyo and I hadn't raced much in 2020 because 2020 was 2020. So I hadn't, yeah, in, in sort of almost the 18 months prior to the Olympics, had only raced like three times, I think. So four times. So I, I, I needed to have that sort of race intensity. So I did do my own little race in Boulder that I got some training partners in. And we did a sprint triathlon. So I did a run off the bike there on my little sprint triathlon day. I felt kind of ridiculous running around some of the roads um, at the reservoir in my full-on tri-suit, but I guess that's not that unusual in Boulder. And uh, then 10 days before, I think it was 10 days before the race, maybe 12, I did a brick session. Um, that was like one of my final key sessions, which went very well. So I did something that was like an eight minute um, through and off. So two other people joined me threw it off and then um, 1K run times four, the four minute rest between each bike and run chunk. Um, but other than that, I really don't do that many, which is probably strange as a triathlete, but I just feel like I don't need them. Do you think that it's more important to be or to try and get as good at each individual discipline as possible. And ultimately that means that you're faster across all three. So you'll be faster on race day rather than like a lot of, a lot of, I think a lot of age groupers can relate to this, maybe more so even than professionals, like doing like um, a ride and then doing an easy six kilometers off the ride because in quotation marks, it's specific, even though it's not actually specific to race day and mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily make you faster. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Like, I suppose if I've done, if I'm going to do a brick run off the bike, like it needs to be specific. It can't just be a, a 6K easy run at five minute per K. Like I never do that in a race. And I feel like that's just taking away from my recovery after, you know, assuming the ride had some hard quality in it. Like it's just delaying that recovery period. And so, yeah, I guess I don't need to get off the bike and just slog some five minute Ks. Um, I've also raced for so many years that my body is really well conditioned to running off of the bike. And I think because I have done triathlon my whole life. Yeah. I am very conditioned to that. Yeah. The, I did want to do another, a brick session, um, 
before 70.3 worlds because I think running off of a TT bike for me at least because I'm so new to the TT position and just your body feels a little bit different in general off of a TT bike I find like you feel just a little bit more locked up in the upper body so I just wanted to get used to um and I would have just done an easy run off of the bike just to sort of feel like oh I'm getting my rotation back and getting into my running but um, I couldn't do that because with my knee, I was too worried to do a run right off the bike. So, yeah, I guess I just, yeah, don't find I quite need to do them a lot in very specific circumstances. Sure, but not always. And so this year, 2023, Flora, um, are you going to only race WTCS races or are you going to still mix in a couple of PTO races or, or you know, one or two Ironman 70.3 races? It's still a little bit um, to be determined. I wanted to do some of the PTO 100K races. Uh, actually, it's kind of been an interesting um, decision for for quite a few, actually, athletes that race over that sort of 100K, 70.3 distance of, do you focus more on the 100K? Do you focus more on the 70.3 and then 70.3 worlds? Um, because given the schedule this year, it's actually quite hard to do both really well. Um, and then, yeah, for myself, I will, I'm definitely racing on the world triathlons. WTCS circuit is my, my main goal and continuing to gain points um, in the buildup to Paris and with the Paris test event in August, that's a focus, not because I have to perform, but just because I want to go there and, race hard on the course, see what it's like. Um, and yeah, feel what the conditions are like. So it's, yeah, it really depends. But I think if I find the options and it, it works out, I would like to do some of the PTO hundred K races. And I don't think 70.3 will work out for me this year. And that's primarily because I really only have the bandwidth to fit one to two longer course races in my year. And if you can only pick one to two, for me, I'm kind of more interested in the 100K races because I think I can win more money there versus the 70.3 races. The prize money is not great. And I suppose I don't feel I'm in the space to challenge for the win at 70.3 World. So I maybe would want to go back when I've had at least given myself the chance to have the time and space to prepare for it properly. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> so we know there's three PTO races um, that have been announced so far. There's there's um, Ibiza or the European Open on May 6th. And then there's um, the US Open, um, which is in, I think, May. And then um, there's uh, obviously the Asia, Asian Open, which is in August. So I assume the Asian Open is a no-go for you because you'll be doing the Paris test event right around there. Um, and then... But then actually, no, the US Open's early August as well. So that might... I think it is, yeah. So does that mean that you're racing the European Open? Because I assume you can't do the other two. Um, I wanted to do the European Open, but just given the knee injury I had last year, my training this year has just had to be a bit more delayed, slower building up. So I'm just not quite ready to do that in, I don't know, four weeks' time. I, I wanted to. That was like my goal to open my season, but it's just not going to work out. So perhaps maybe the um, the PTO US Open could work. I mean, I think for me, I've said like the goal this year is I don't like my goal is not to win or sorry, 
challenge to like win the world triathlon series overall. Um, it'd be nice if that works out, but just being a bit more specific, choosing what races I go to. So yeah, still geared towards keeping my ranking up and gaining points, but not having to like chase all of the races, go all around the world back and forth, um, doing them. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess like the, the U S open is probably easy for you because, um, you live there as well. Like you'll probably be in yes. that time of year. So that does make sense. Probably it's like, it doesn't take too much out of you with travel and that kind of thing. Exactly. And because the Paris test event is not a selection race for me where it is for a lot of other big countries. So like that's an a star race for a lot of people. Whereas for, and so is the grand final, which I think is two or three weeks later after, um, no, it might be four weeks later after the Paris test event. So for a lot of people that race short course, those two events are really important for me. They're important that I want to race well in them, but I don't need to win them or podium in them to secure an Olympic slot. So, you know, I just have a little bit more um, bandwidth to kind of play around with um, my racing schedule. Awesome, Flora. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good note to wrap it up on. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things talking to someone like you that I've almost become used to talking to world-class athletes, but I was had a few moments there where I was talking to you. I'm like, oh, this is Flora Duffy. Like, jeez. <laughs> Yeah, it's it like it's a bit of a, a weird one for me where I was just reminding myself as we were talking, remembering what you've done, like just how much you've done, and like thinking about that 2017 year you had where I think you won like six or seven WTCS races, which has never really been done by a female before, and things like that. And yeah, it was just an awesome, awesome chat, like seriously, an awesome chat. And um, I can't wait for 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 people to to listen to this. I'm um, I'm really excited for for next Monday when when people are going to get the chance to listen to this because. Um, yeah, that was that was seriously fascinating to hear you hear you talk about all that, um, and can't wait to to follow along and see what you do over the PTO distance and see whether you ever do win a seventy point three world championship and but but maybe more short term. I, I can't wait to see whether you can be that person who goes and um, and wins two Olympic gold medals um, for the first time. Like I think if any female that that's alive right now can do it, it it's probably you. So I am excited. <laughs> I'm excited to see if you can uh, equal Alistair Brownlee and. And really cement yourself. You know, I, th I already think you're the best short distance triathlete of all time, but I would love to see you do that and just cement yourself without question as that person. Oh. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Flora. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And yeah, lots of exciting things to look forward to in, in the sport of triathlon right now, which is awesome. Amen. All right, Flora, have a good day. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks so much. Bye. So, something that a lot of you might not know is that I coach a handful of triathletes myself. I've been in triathlon for over 15 years. I've been to university and done exercise sports science. I've dabbled in racing at the highest level myself and I've obsessed over this sport my whole life. And something that I now do with all of my new athletes when they start with me is get them to grab a pair of form goggles. In my opinion, they are a training tool every single age group and professional triathlete should have. The real-time data you get while you swim is the equivalent to your run and ride GPS computer in terms of importance for me and no one trains without those now but a lot of people still don't use form goggles. That's why we see people like Christian Blumenfeld and Gustav Eden and Lionel Sanders using them in their training. They see it like I do, that they're just a, like they're a non-negotiable if you want to be your best. Unfortunately, 
your wearable GPS watch is almost completely useless in the pool, except to maybe look back on after the session. But even then, it's hard to get it exactly right because you sort of have to click start and stop and it's often not super accurate and we can like cheat ourselves a little bit. If you train for triathlon and you don't already use form goggles, you just don't know what you're missing out on. And if you do use them, then you'll know what I mean when I say you literally will never go back to not using them once you start. The same way you won't ever go back to running or riding with your GPS or power device once you start doing it, especially if you want to be the best triathlete you can be. So head to form.com or just Google form to find their website and buy yourself a pair. Use the code HTT15 for 15% off your goggles. It also supports the show. But honestly, I'd tell you, my athletes, anyone that trains for triathlon to get them, even if I didn't have any affiliation with them, the same way I bought them for myself. That's how important I think they are if, you're, if you want your swim to be the best it can possibly be. All the details for that are in the show notes. 